Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a great guest for you today, Adrian Elrod. We will get to her momentarily. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Here's some feedback we received this week. On our Matt Friend interview, Rick Ragusa says this was a fun conversation. On our conversation with Shelley Wright, George Hahn writes, I love Shelley so much. Leslie J. said, thank you for introducing me to this artist. I went right out and found her documentary. All right, let's get to our two big things. But then you look at Donald Trump. It's not normal to pay $50 million in campaign contributions towards your personal court cases. It's not normal to mock the military. It's not normal to go and choose the side of a tyrant over our allies. It's not normal to have any of this happen. That's the problem. I mean, technically, she could have said, when you look at Donald Trump, it's not normal. <laughs> like, she could have just stopped right there, right? What, I mean, part of the normalization of Trump is to itemize his things that aren't normal. Because he really just needs to say the problem with Trump is that he's a fucking sociopath and we've never seen anyone like him. Like... Of course it's not normal, but she still, she still won't mention the four indictments and the 91 felony counts and the rape thing, the little rape thing. That's why we can't call her better late than never, Nikki. She is definitely not better late than never, Nikki. She's better. She's better, but still late, Nikki, is actually what her name should be. But it is interesting. She definitely has her footing. She has her voice. She's competent. She's been emotional. She cried about her husband. I think she's presenting in the last couple of weeks as a infinitely better candidate than she was. The problem is she's way behind. We get South Carolina tomorrow. I, I literally want Trump, on the one hand, to just blow the doors off of the whole thing because I want him to be the nominee because he's going to lose. On the other hand, it'll be a really great thing if somehow she did way better. Forget win, but did way better than anyone is expecting. Yeah, I mean, obviously the polls are not going to be that wrong, and she's almost certainly going to do poorly in her own state, which isn't a good sign, but it just shows you how backwards that state is to support him over her. Um, but, you know, she seems like she's going to stay in through Super Tuesday, mm -hmm. at least, no at matter least what. She has the money. Yeah, I mean, I think that she's obviously being funded by donors who really don't like Trump, and yeah. that's why she's able to stay in. And she can go far. I mean, she's, she's raising a fuckload of money. And he's not. I mean, he's having problems. You know, he's got like 200,000 less small donors. He's raising way less money in the last six months, this campaign, than he did in the last one. And that's not a great sign. He's losing. His, his base is eroding. His fundraising is, is eroding. His popularity is eroding. So I wish she had done things differently earlier on. But in a lot of ways, she's just like him. She's just as scary. The whole embryos is our babies thing. Yeah, she couldn't get that one. She was, she was wobbling on that yesterday. It's unbelievable. Well, the Republicans, they just don't know what to do with this thing. They blurt things out, and then they read the press, and they go, fuck, how do we walk it back? I mean, did you see this interview with Tommy Tuberville yesterday? Yeah, they're all stuck with this Alabama ruling, which... Uh... Yeah, they don't know what... They don't know. We're going to talk about that in a second, but, you know, the thing with Haley is that I still don't know what her goal is. Is her goal to take the Trump base? Is her goal to take everyone else? Because she's doing nothing that would get her to either goal. Well, she had. I mean, she had at one point when I was still watching the debates, she talked about what was realistic in terms of a national point of view from mm -hmm. an abortion perspective from the 15-week ban as opposed to this nonsense but, you know, I guess you can't have it both ways. Well, that's her problem. She's constantly trying to burn the candle at both ends. And then you walk away saying, well, then who is Nikki Haley? Yeah, I think she's just staying in to, to dent Donald Trump mm -hmm. and possibly have some power at the convention with a certain number of delegates. I don't know that she'll have enough delegates to make a difference uh, based on her performance in terms of people actually voting for her. Well, the, the interesting thing is, is there's talk now that she's 
She's playing the hanging around the hoop strategy, which for those of us who have played basketball in our past. Because <laughs> Matt and I are just looking at you <laughs> blankly. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> you guys are like, what's a hoop? <laughs> what's basketball? No, so like, especially with tall guys, like if when you're a kid, if you have like a really tall friend, you just go stand under the hoop and just stay there, okay? And that's kind of what she's doing. She's just like circling the hoop, like maybe he's going to be convicted in June of something, in July, and then the convention comes and it's fucking chaotic. And they're like, all right, well, who's, who's, who's standing around the hoop? It's not crazy. It's not, no. No, I mean, as long as, I mean, basically Chris Christie, I think just, his donor decided not to give him any more money. So mm-hmm. as long as you have donors giving you money, what do you have to lose? I mean, the main thing she has to lose, which she just said in that clip we played, she doesn't seem to care about is her political future. So if you're going to give up on your political future and she doesn't have plans to, you know, get the Trump base in 2028, mm-hmm. then, you know, you what's to lose? Yeah. I mean, she said, if you think I'm trying to be vice president, I think I've cleared that up. (laughs) I have no doubt she's actually being honest on that one statement. But, you know, you end a race not because you've lost primaries or you're down in the polls. You you end your campaign when you run out of cash, to your point. So as long as there are people funneling cash to her campaign, she's going to circle the hoop. She's going to play the hoop game, you know? Um, CPAC... I realized we didn't go to CPAC. We were supposed to oh, go to CPAC. That's right. That's right. We had a whole plan. Uh, that's because 2023 was the fastest year in history. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but like. So true. Wait, it's over? <laughs> it's crazy. I was just talking about that with my daughter Emily last night, that we remember things from a year ago like it was yesterday. That was the fastest year. Hi, Emily. Um, and Jack Persobiec. I I really want to know how you say his name because I Persobiec. Okay, or shithead. <laughs> I think it's shithead actually. That's without doubt in, he, in Hebrew. It's shithead in Hebrew. But he said, "Quote: Welcome to the end of democracy. We are here to overthrow it completely. We didn't get all the way there on January sixth, but we will endeavor to get rid of it and replace it with this right here." And I guess he was holding up like a cross or something. And then he says, "All glory is not to government. All glory to God." Anybody want to bring him up to speed on the whole separation of church and power thing? Nah. He's he's not even a Christian nationalist. He's just playing to them. He's cosplaying a Christian nationalist. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I fail to see the humor in these guys anymore. But the fact that they just brazenly say the quiet parts out loud now is unbelievable. What else we got here? Trump is running out of cash in January, spent more money than he took in. Um, Such a great businessman. The the best. Only the best. (laughs) Look, the one thing I think he did say to his base, one of the campaign promises in 16 was that I will run this like my business. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes he does say the truth. He says what he's going to do and he... He does it. The fact that he's now been like shut down in New York and has been hit with like a bazillion dollar fine. He was right. He did run America and promises to do it again like his business. Well, I have to say when Letitia starts taking the Trump Tower sign down, we need to get there and do some selfies. That's a great idea, Matt. Letish Tower. That should be (laughs) the brand. You could just say New York State Tower. Because they're going to own it. Letish. Letish Tower. I mean, we'll like that, but That's I don't think fantasy. they can actually put that on there. Uh, the other night he sat down for a Fox Town Hall, and uh, Laura Ingram mentioned the fines and said, Sir, sir, how are you going to pay for this? <laughs> and his answer was, it's a form of Navalny. It's a form of communism or fascism. No, actually, it's a form of democracy, because in a democracy you have a constitution and a rule of law, and if you break the law, you're held accountable, and he's being held accountable by having to pay a fine. So it's literally the opposite of communism communism is also where like one man is a dictator and is above the law and he's being held accountable to the law but the fact that this fucker compares himself to navalny but he won't say anything bad about putin and either still <laughs> hasn't said anything about putin but, but what does it even mean it's a form of navalny what okay you're right, Mr. Trump. You are right. So here we have this honest, decent, kind, good, selfless 
patriotic opposition leader who sacrificed everything, especially his life for his countrymen and women so that they can live freely. The way he was brutally murdered is exactly the way you, as a fucking corrupt, treasonous, rapist pig, is being held accountable. Like, the fact that this guy sees them as the same is unbelievable to me. Um, the VP stakes are still hot. Tim Scott is out there continuing on his humiliation tour. <laughs> Trump yesterday or whatever, the day before. I think it was last night or the night before. He was like, he did a lot better for me. He's doing a lot better for me than he did for himself. Like, Trump keeps humiliating this guy in public, and he just keeps coming back for more. Tim Scott doesn't care. He thinks he's going to be vice president. I actually don't think he'll be chosen. It's going to be oh, Elise. Gonna be it's going to be Elise Stefanik. It's going to be wow. a, it's going to be a woman. It's going to be sure. Elise. It likely will be Elise Stefanik, but that's almost like too normal a choice. In a strange way, you're right. I I don't. Yeah, I don't think this choice will be made very late. He does not want anyone taking attention from him until the very last minute. I would agree with that, but I also think it could come sooner than later because it just could be another distraction, you know? Take the heat off. All of a sudden, oh, he appointed a woman. Isn't he so great? Like, now he's a fucking hero. you got to remember who Trump... In the Trump, annals of American history. Remember who Trump is. He doesn't want anything to take attention from him. So even though that would actually be politically probably mm -hmm. a good idea, mm -hmm. that's not Trump in my head. Mm -hmm. If this was Vegas, my smart money would be on Stefanik. My long shot bet would be Tulsi Gabbard. I don't think so. I don't think so either. Okay. All right. We shall see. We shall. Um, Alabama, IVF, Supreme Court ruled this week that embryos in test tubes should be considered children. Uh, I was watching Ari Melber last night, and he interviewed Michael Moore. And at the beginning of the interview, Michael Moore turns away from the camera and goes, will you guys knock it off down there? And then he comes back and he goes, sorry, there's <laughs> just a bunch of embryos running up and down the hall. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... If you're in Alabama, can you claim embryos on your tax return as dependents? I believe you can. Can you put an embryo in a crib? Can you put it in a baby Bjorn? They have to get little embryo carriers mm. specially for them. Can you hire a babysitter for an embryo? Would it be neglectful if you didn't? Mm. I think it's called liquid nitrogen. And the big question, can an embryo fit in a onesie? Hmm. You have so many business opportunities here. I mean, what are the domains we can reserve exactly. on this? Embryos are us. <laughs> I mean, and then and then Nikki Haley with her fucking, you know, embryos are babies. No, they're not. They're not. Have you seen what an embryo looks like? It's not a baby. See, she, she just could have done what Biden does. And Biden doesn't believe in abortion. And Biden and his family don't have to get abortions. But he respects the fact that other people have different views. And he articulates that actually yes. fairly regularly. Yes. That's all she had to do. That's all she has yes. to do. But Right. But, but this nonsense that embryos are babies is ridiculous. Can you put one in, a, in the front seat of your car and stay in the HOV lane? It's even worse the than that. <laughs> <Like, laughs> <laughs> I My brain is like. <laughs> I, could, I could keep going with the embryo jokes. Can you go in a restaurant and ask for a high chair for a fucking embryo? Do they have embryo chairs? No, they don't. Because <laughs> embryos don't go out to eat. They eat inside. They eat at home. <laughs> what am I gonna say? <laughs> All right. Well, look. What's a little embryo fun between friends? No, it's it's it goes it flies in the face of what this party stands for in terms of having children, because the IVF clinics are now suspending mm -hmm. all. Sure, University of Alabama at Birmingham yep. Hospital, like well, not only the biggest hospital in Alabama, but I think like the eighth biggest hospital in the country. Yeah, I mean, pausing IVF. It's right. So basically, the on. way these red states are going, the medical schools there, they're not going to be able to teach abortion. They're not going to do IVF. By the time they're done gutting science, you're not going to have a medical school in no. Alabama. But, but I do think they just keep shooting themselves in the foot. We saw what happened after Dobbs. This, to me, is just another Dobbs. This is not a year to say, hey, Democrats, hey, independents, hey, moderate Republican suburban women, here's another reason not to vote for us in November. 
I and they really, just really, really, really hope you're right. You're getting ahead to my winner here soon, so I don't, don't get that. No, it's kind of mine too. So. My, it's my loser. <laughs> it's also our second big story of the week. All right, let's get to the winners and losers. My winner. Biden cancels $1.2 billion in student loan debt for 150,000 borrowers. With the latest round of relief, the Biden administration has canceled $138 billion of student debt for nearly 3.9 million borrowers. My loser, women. The Alabama state court ruling stated that frozen embryos and test tubes must be considered children. My winner is the Democratic Party because of the abhorrent anti-science ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court that embryos are people. My loser is Rachel Mitchell, the Maricopa County DA, for pretending to be a concerned party as she refuses to extradite a murderer to New York City's district attorney, Alvin Bragg. And just to point out, Phoenix does have double the murder rate as New York. My winner, the Democratic Party, who in the wake of the Alabama Supreme Court's ruling on frozen embryos and IVF, already seems to be a huge political beneficiary. My loser, Vlad Putin who, after murdering opposition leader Alexei Navalny last week, is now holding his body hostage and blackmailing his mother until she agrees to a secret burial. All right, it's time for the weekly rant. There's a reason why Adolf Hitler was obsessed with Aryans and wanted to remake Germany in their image. They were tall, handsome, beautiful, blonde, chiseled, fit. In short, they were everything the small, ugly, dark-haired, unathletic Hitler wasn't. Similarly, this Aryan fetishizing explains Donald Trump's fascination with strong men and with those he sees as winners, because he himself is neither. Rather, he's an obese, out of shape, ugly on the inside and out, urine-haired, orange-hued Nepo baby who, despite a $400 million inheritance from daddy, still managed to end up on the road to bankruptcy and prison. On the off chance any MAGAs are listening, let me repeat myself. Donald Trump is neither a strong man or a winner. He's a weak, feckless coward and a loser of epic proportions whose pathologically obsessive aspirations to be someone he's not rival that of his hero Adolf Hitler. And to my fellow libtards listening, if given the chance, Trump just might be as bad as Hitler. He's a hate-filled white supremacist, a despicable racist with the survival instincts of a New York City subway rat. Consider that he's tried to have his former VP killed for what he felt was a betrayal. That he fantasizes about using the military to assassinate his opponents. And when it comes to black and brown immigrants, we know he's obsessed with Eisenhower's Operation Wetback, and if president again threatens militarized mass deportations and detention camps. So at this stage in his evolution, is genocide really such a stretch? Would he attempt the rounding up and mass slaughter of minorities, immigrants, or anyone else if he felt it had benefit him politically or financially, or if it would keep him out of prison? If it allowed him to fulfill his dream of being president for life? The fact that this is even a semi-legit topic of discussion means that it's a possibility, however remote. And that is terrifying, which is why Democrats need more than a 55% turnout in November. We need to vote like our lives depend on it, because it does. Alrighty, it's time for Adrian Elrod. She's a political strategist, government affairs expert, and communicator with over 25 years of experience working on Capitol Hill, the executive branch, and advising corporate and political organizations. A native of Arkansas, she began her political career in President Bill Clinton's administration, serving in both the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. On Hillary Clinton's 2008 presidential campaign, Adrian served as Regional Press Secretary, Texas Communications Director, and Deputy Director of the Congressional Delegate Selection Office. On the 2016 presidential campaign, she served as Hillary for America's Director of Strategic Communications. Most recently, she served in the Biden administration as Director of External and Government Affairs for CHIPS for America at the Department of Commerce. She also served as Biden for President's Director of Surrogate Strategy and Operations during the 2020 campaign. She's also a frequent contributor to NBC and MSNBC News. Adrian, welcome to the back room. Thanks for having me. So before we get started with all the typical political craziness, I want to peel the onion back a little and go back to childhood because I always like to know where people come from, 
what mm-hmm. they're made of, because it's interesting to see if there's connective tissue to their interests and hobbies when they were little, to what they end up doing when they're big. So tell us about your yeah. childhood. What what were your interests back then? Did you have any interest in the stuff you do today? Was, was your family political? And if so, were they liberal, conservative? How'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? Great question. I grew up in a small town near Fayetteville, Arkansas, Siloam Springs. Um, my grandfather was a state senator. My parents and my grandfather and my uncle, um, all attorneys. I, my grandfather and my uncle have since passed away, but I grew up in a family of attorneys. So it was sort of assumed, at least I assumed that at some point I would get this like bug that I had to go to law school and and, and that was going to be that. Um, but my grandfather was a state senator. So I think that's kind of what sparked my interest in politics. And then, of course, when Bill Clinton, mm-hmm. needless to say, uh, home state governor was elected president of the United States. Um, I was 16 years old. Um, right then and there, I knew that I wanted to at least be a part of his administration. I, I knew him. I, my family knew him really well. Uh, and it was just sort of a, you know, a natural entry point that, that you know, I, I certainly took advantage of. When I was in college, I interned at the White House, um, and then I was completely hooked, and I moved here in 1998, like two days after I graduated from college, because I knew that he only had a couple of years left and I wanted to be a part of it. And again, I always thought I was going to come here, do this for a couple of years, go back to Arkansas, go to go to the University of Arkansas Law School, maybe join my parents' law firm, maybe do something else. And needless to say, that did not happen. And I'm quite, no no offense to my parents, but I'm quite glad that I took a different, different tack professionally. And when you say here, that's D.C.? Yes, mm-hmm. I'm in D.C. Mm-hmm. And so I remember watching when Bill Clinton won, and I remember him on stage with his family and Al Gore with yeah. his family and thinking, wow, we've come so far. This is so cool. He's got a little kid. He's young. He's not quite my generation, but he's in the neighborhood. It must have been incredible yeah. to have worked on that campaign and be a part of that celebration. Yeah, it really was. I mean, first of all, it's kind of crazy because Bill Clinton it was is several years younger, more than several years younger than I am now when he was sworn in president, which seems kind of crazy, but it, it's the reality. Um, no, but it was really incredible. I mean, there was such a like, you know, even going into his White House in, in the second term, toward the end of the second term, I started, started working there in 1998. Um, there was still this kind of youthful excitement, energy, and and just, you know, vigor around him and in 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 the entire presidency um you know the staff in the white house was young uh you know he was you know in his you know mid 40s at that point um mid to late 40s uh and it just felt you know it was just an exciting time the economy was doing really well uh he obviously had survived an impeachment um so there was an air of you know relief there obviously uh but it was really an exciting time to be a part of um that administration that was when you know, centrist, you know, form of government was was uh, incredibly popular. That's how President Clinton mm-hmm. governed. Um, and, you know, look, I think to anybody out there listening, especially young listeners out there, you know, interning in, in whatever profession you want to go into um, and then, you know, obviously hoping that turns into a job in the future is so critically important because a lot of the people I interned with and a lot of the people I subsequently worked with in 98 to 2001 in the Clinton White House are still the people I work with today. A lot of those people are, are in the Biden White House. A lot of us did Hillary's 08, 16 campaigns together. We did Biden 20 together, um, you know, the 2004 election cycle. It's just, you know, it's a network of people that carry you through your career, career professionally. And it's just, you know, a lot of those folks that I still work with today are the folks, same folks I worked with in 1998. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe his magic because everyone always says he was, and probably still is, one of the greatest candidates, had the greatest skill set as a candidate. Uh, but I'm curious to know, having been close to it and him, what is your take on that? Well, he just, you know, I mean, you probably have read this or seen this or maybe experienced this, but it's so true. He he makes you feel like when you're talking to him that you're the only person in the room. And mm-hmm. that is a, I think, an undervalued skill set. It's not even really a skill set. I think you're born with it. Mm-hmm. Um but how many times, Andy, have you been at a cocktail party or in a meeting or somewhere where you're having a conversation with somebody and they keep looking over you to see, you know, who else is around? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have witnessed President Clinton, whether it's on a rope line, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's in a restaurant, wherever it may be, um, you know, having these really heart to heart one on one conversations with people that, you know, people walk away just feeling like magic because he makes you feel like you are the single most important person in the room. 
Um, and he's obviously a great storyteller. He's a great orator. I mean, you may remember in 2012 during the convention um, when it was Obama Romney and Obama was obviously running for reelection and he was having a really hard time trying to sell the Affordable Care Act. It had been passed into law, but it was very unpopular with voters, which seems so crazy now because it's so overwhelmingly across the board popular with Democrats and Republicans, independents, you name it, people love the Affordable Care Act um, slash Obamacare. And who did Obama call to see if they would, um, you know, stand on the stage at the convention and really convince the American people mm -hmm. why this legislation is important? Bill Clinton, because mm -hmm. he's a great storyteller. He's a great, uh, you know, messenger in terms of just being able to take, you know, very complicated policy and distilling it to very easily understandable terminology. So he's uh, he's one of the best, and uh, he was an incredible person to work for. He's still someone I'm lucky enough to call a good friend. Uh, along with his, you know, incredible wife, Hillary. So um, I was really lucky to get my uh, political chops started working for the two of them. Mm. I did experience it firsthand. I was at a, a, a thing at Mark Green's loft in New York. It was when Al Gore was, what was the year when Al Gore was sort of flirting with running again? Like eight? Yeah, 08. Yeah, it was 08. And so 08. I was at this thing in the summer and uh, it was Mark Green had taken over Air America Radio with his brother and had a celebration and bill clinton was the uh, the guest of honor and it was like maybe 80 or 90 people and he said okay yeah. we put together this little video which is going to show you know the whole air america story and if everybody could just sort of make a little space so the projector can and of course like technology it didn't work and we're all waiting there and we're waiting there and i, and I look over like just two feet from me waiting as well with his arms crossed <laughs> is, is bill yeah and so i looked at him and i said is al gore gonna run and he looked he leans into yeah. me and he's like well, he could. He's the only one that's got the name recognition, and uh, he's got the money. I mean, yeah. he could he could have said anything to me, and he could have also just ignored me. You know what I mean? But he literally went to that place of just talking to me like a real person, like I was the only one in the room. Now, conversely, I want to ask you, and this is a little bit of a tougher question. I love Hillary. I was always with Hillary. I still am with Hillary. I would lie down in traffic for Hillary. Okay, <laughs> she's so I'm, a bat. I'm just putting that out there. And my daughter, when she was young, she cut her own hair when she was like six years old. And I said, yeah. what did you do? And she goes, I wanted to look like Hillary. So we're oh big, we're big Hillary people in our family. I never understood when people said, oh, she lacks the, you know, the skills that Bill has or she just doesn't yeah. come off well. And anytime I've ever seen her anywhere doing anything, I've always found her to be smart, engaging, uh, funny, interesting, uh, what do you mm -hmm. think was the problem with her, with certain people? I mean, I, I've spoken to women yeah. on the Upper West Side of Manhattan who were like, no, nah, no Hillary for me. And, and I never really it's understood so crazy. That. It is crazy. And then I think a lot of the same people after Trump won um, realized, oh, my gosh, like she's actually pretty great. And especially seeing how, you know, graceful she was, but still using her bully pulpit in a very mm -hmm. effective way to push Trump, you know, at, when he ascended to the presidency and it started, you know, implementing all these crazy erratic policies. Look at me. I don't get it because I've spent so much time with her through the years. I've worked for her on two presidential campaigns. She, I, she's someone I call a dear friend. Mm -hmm. um, I talk to her quite frequently. I see her. We have dinner sometimes. She's the most engaging mm -hmm. person. She's so incredibly thoughtful, so incredibly smart, always asking about my parents, always asking about how I'm doing loves a good joke, has the single best laugh, I think maybe mm -hmm. I've, that I've ever heard. You've, you've seen it, right? Very that true. belly laugh. Very just, true. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, she's been that, that same laugh that she had, she's had her entire life when she was first lady of Arkansas, first lady of the uh, United States. I don't understand it. I mean, there, the one thing I will say is there's a docu docu-series that Hulu did a couple years ago that I encourage anyone who's trying to understand why there's this you know, weird thing that people, you know, sometimes feel about Hillary uh, that really it's a six part series and it really goes through chronologically her time at Wellesley, her time in, in you know, law school, uh, you know, her time as first lady of Arkansas, first lady of the United States, et cetera. And it shows it, it shows this footage of, you know, when she was simply trying to pass affordable health care in Arkansas as first lady of the state. She would go to the, you know, small town to small town. People would hold up these signs saying, Hillary Clinton, you know, Hillary hates babies. Hillary mm -hmm. hates this. And she would face the scrutiny constantly. And look, being a politician, even being the wife of a politician, that is part of the deal. And she obviously knows that. 
but her entire life, there has been such an effort, not just on the far right, but, you know, among a lot in the media to, you know, many in the media to try to tear her down. Mm -hmm. And I think after a certain point, you kind of steal yourself. And, you know, the Hillary that oftentimes was portrayed in the media, uh, whether it was a very ser serious interview that she was giving or whether it was, you know, the media's portrayal of her is certainly not the person that, um, you know, that I know and certainly not the person that millions of Americans, you know, have encountered and, mm -hmm. and spent time with. I think, you know, when she testified in front of the Benghazi committee uh, for 11 and a half hours, that was such a moment for her because, you know, the American people didn't just see her in a 30 second soundbite. They saw her for 11 and a half hours taking these ridiculous questions um, thrown at her left and right. She never, you know, she never said, I'm, I'm done. I'm walking out of here. Uh, she just sat through it and she was unstartled. They, they, she was unflappable. They couldn't, they couldn't get to her. Um, but I think Americans really found a new, a newfound respect for her in that moment where, you know, she answered the questions out of respect for the families and those who lost their lives, uh, but not out of respect for, of course, some of the ridiculous questions and of course the motivations mm -hmm. that were behind uh, many on the committee. So I don't get it. She, I think she's the best, and I think she's also really funny and great and also just a dear friend. Loves to gossip. Loves to, you know. A yenta. Just want to know what's going on. Yeah. Is a huge part of it just sexism? Of course. Yes, of course. A lot of it's sexism. And again, a lot of it is, you know, when you had, have a network like Fox News mm -hmm. that spent millions and millions and millions, probably well over, frankly, a billion dollars for years tearing her down. Um you know, once you are defined in that in that uh, constituency, it becomes very hard. Mm -hmm. Well, she was certainly the most qualified candidate for, for president and probably would have gone down in history as one of the best presidents ever, which sort of segues into my next question. You, you've just come off of a stint in the Biden administration, um, mm -hmm. a year, a year and a half, I think, something like that. About, yeah, a little over mm -hmm. a year. And so he, here's another guy who, hands down, is the most productive, successful president in modern history, Absolutely. if not all of history. Uh, he has done things that under the worst circumstances, the most toxic political landscape. Yet, how do you explain his numbers? Are we to just not believe them? Should we say, fuck it, you know, polls don't matter anymore? Like, it makes no sense to me. It doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, first of all, you have to look at the fact that you just nailed it. I mean, he's passed four major economic bills, um, including the, uh, you know, the rescue plan, which saved our country from going into a major recession after the pandemic. Um, of course, the um, the uh, infrastructure bill. Remember, every every week was infrastructure sure. week under the administration. Nothing ever got done. And mm -hmm. so thanks to President Biden, you know, roads are getting rebuilt. Bridges are getting repaired. There's so much going on. Um, you know, nationally because of him in terms of our infrastructure needs, finally getting that infrastructure bill passed. Uh, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, which has had a, has historic climate change uh, legislation provisions to like really address some of the hard hitting issues that we have in our country, getting millions of Americans back to work, not just back to work um, in, in random jobs, but in jobs where they can have the dignity in, which I think Something, that's something that Biden talks about a lot, which is it's not just a, enough to have a job. You want to have a job you have faith and dignity in so you can come home every day to your family and feel like you really, you know, did something that made made you proud. Uh, and then, of course, the Chip and Science Act, mm -hmm. which I was fortunate enough to be a part of that implementation team uh, at, at the Department of Commerce. I could go on and on about yeah, the, the, the gun reform the, bill. First decent bill in 30 years. Gun like, reform mm -hmm. bill. Correct. First black woman on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, adding two countries to NATO, uh, keeping, you know, World War III from happening, given, you know, everything happening sure. in Russia, Ukraine, the Middle East. I mean, that is a delicate dance that he and his team are dealing with every single day. It is not easy. So, uh, so much that he's done. I mean, I think I think he's going to end up being the most consequential mm -hmm. president of my lifetime, um, but quite possibly multiple generations. Um, I mean, you, you, you literally cannot... It's, it's, it's hard to describe how, how difficult it is to get that much legislation passed uh, with a fractured con Congress, with a divided country, the way he has. And a um, lot to be proud of. I do think he's going to win re-election. I know we probably will talk a little bit more about mm -hmm. that. But there is, does seem to be a disconnect with all of the successes and in, in, in what the American people understand to be 
you know, things that he should be taking credit for. So we agreed that with Hillary, it was sexism. Are we just dealing with ageism? Is that what this is? That people look at him and they're like, oh, he's too old. So let's let's take the democracy raping dictator wannabe. Yeah, you know, I've got a lot of theories about this. I mean, I think that the media is looking for, they are scrambling for a fight again, right? They want a real competitive election between Biden and Trump again. It's more exciting for them to cover. And they're really hanging on to ageism, um, you know, a lot more than I think the average American is. I mean, it's like they're almost telling us that we need to think that this is a problem, that this is an issue. Um, because the bottom line is this, as long as you're getting things done as president, that usually means you're going to get reelected more often than not. I don't know what the stats are, uh, but more often than not. So, um, I think also, and this is something that president Biden and his team are really leaning into and his surrogates. They're saying, you know, look, yeah, I am, you know, he is X amount of years old, but at the same time, look at everything he's done. And with age comes wisdom, comes relationship ships comes experience he knows foreign leaders they know him they trust him he's got deep relationships in the congress which he certainly used to get a lot of this you know legislation passed um you know that counts for something Mm -hmm. uh hillary clinton was on rachel maddow a couple months ago and she had this great when asked about the age issue this really great like kind of two-minute monologue where she emphasized how important it is you have someone who has that much experience and that much that brings that much wisdom to the table. So I think in many ways it's a plus. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the media is looking for a fight. And that's one of the reasons why we are talking about it a lot, because the media is talking about mm-hmm. it a lot. See, I think they need to tackle this head on. I have this idea for an ad that that the campaign should do. It opens with like two seconds each of Biden jogging on his bicycle. Yep. Shooting a basket, perhaps with Obama. And then yep. maybe doing one or two push-ups, right? He's in a he's in track pants, <laughs> with a tight-fitting T-shirt. He gets up and he goes, hey, Donald, can you do that? And then the next thing we see is him sitting in the Corvette. His arm is out the window. He's got his hand on the wheel. He's got the Joe Biden shades on. And then he goes, too old? Come on, man. Guns the engine. And then we see him just driving like 100 miles an hour. And then the voiceover goes something like, it's not how young you are. It's how fit you are to serve you know so why don't they tackle it head on like that that's so smart that's so smart i mean look the guy is in great shape i mean you, you see him riding his bike you see him um you know walking on the beach with with uh, the first lady i mean when he's in delaware he is in really really good shape my understanding is he works out almost every morning yeah. I, mean, uh, like, I saw you retweeted a piece that jennifer Palmieri wrote in uh, yes. in response to Ezra Klein's. Ezra Klein yes. wrote this piece, which I, I wanted to hit the wall when I read it, but it was like, Joe Biden, oh gosh, get me. out of the race. And Jen was oh. like, no way. And here, here are the reasons why it makes zero sense, whether it's financially, with donations, with you know the yep. positioning and timing, all that. What do you make of this lunacy that he should drop out when in fact he is the best candidate to take on trump and beat him again i i'm just i'm so tired of it like enough i mean i guess i'm not surprised the new york times would run something Mm -hmm. like that uh but it's like you know she jen really you know in her op-ed really picked apart every argument and refuted it with facts which of course is the best way to push back against something so ridiculous uh, but look, a couple things. Number one, I mean, first of all, it's just silly that, you know, we're, you know, that anybody would even think that he would drive out of this point. But one of the points she makes is whoever the person coming in to take his place would have to start over on fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not like he can just give his, you know, the, the amount that he's raised to somebody else. So that's one issue. Uh, number two, he's got a strong record to run on. I mean, mm-hmm. think about you know, Trump trying to run, you know, I mean, it was, obviously we beat him in 2020, but like he had nothing to run on because he basically got nothing done. Um, wh- you compare that to President Obama. I mean, I'm sorry, President Biden that just have a long list of accomplishments. So you've got that, including creating tons of jobs, which is only going to, you know, and we're having a very good economy, which is only uh, going to help further the American people. Um, and then, you know, finally, the bottom line is he is polling better than any other Democrat against Donald Trump mm-hmm. right now. That is the plain and simple truth. Why? Because he's gotten a lot done. People are very familiar with him. They know that he is, you know, steady Eddie when he's in the administration. He's been a very steady president. Uh, he's been a, a very effective president. Um, 
we're also living in a very divided country, you know? I mean, if somebody else were hypothetically, let's just say that President Biden decided, you know, a year ago that he wasn't going to run for re-election and it was somebody else, I think we would still be, you know, in a very close election, no matter who it is, because we're just in a divided country. We are in a basically a 50 to 50 mm -hmm. country. And so he's the best person. He's got the best record. He's got an incredible team behind him, both in the White House, on the campaign. Those things count for a lot. Um, and, I, you know, he's he's the strongest candidate that we have. Mm -hmm. um, I could be more proud to to support him, to, to you know, be... Uh, you know, as a, a surrogate doing a lot of TV for him. I just think he's incredible. And I, I am really excited for a second term. Yeah. you And, you know, there's also the mental acuity issue. You tweeted a clip of Trump. I guess it was when he was on with Laura Ingram. And he said oh, yeah. something like, we're going to have very powerful crime and you're going to be proud of it again. What does that even mean? I don't know. And how I, how like, is the media not pounce like he he mistakes like Al Sisi and I uh, forget who he confused the Egypt leader with, but that was like yeah, the biggest news for a week. Trump says we're all going to be proud Trump of the even powerful. Know who the leaders of those two countries are? I doubt it. You know, I mean, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to the media. They are looking for a fight. They, I mean, it was like doomsday central that yeah. President Biden, you know, in a moment of frustration and, 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 you know, anger at the special counsel's report for mentioning his son's deceased son's name, which was, don't even, even get me started on that. It's not worth the oxygen. Um, he confused, you know, two world leaders names and here's Trump making gaffe after gaffe after, after gaffe in every interview that he does, including some saying the crazy thing about crime that he said. And everyone's like, oh, well, that's Trump being Trump. You know, you cannot have it both ways. And I think the campaign does such a good job of really, you know, lifting up those multiple moments that Trump is, you know, screwing up, making mm -hmm. gaffes, saying crazy things, um, which, again, are whatever Biden's gaffes are pale com in comparison to what Trump is saying. The, the normalization of Trump is just astounding to me. And the media is to blame for that. We saw that early on in the Trump administration when for years... They refuse to call him a liar. They just talk about, yeah. you know, all his mistruths. And he's a liar. It took the New York Times like three years to finally call him a liar. And so every time the media both sides it, it normalizes him. So I agree with you. I don't think Biden's going to lose. The math just doesn't work for me. His base is eroded. And we're talking about he lost bigly, to use his word, pre-impeachment, pre insurrection, pre-indictment, pre-fraudster and a rapist. Like, I don't see how Trump wins. So I don't get the, the chicken little sky is falling hysteria among liberals. I'll never say never with Trump. But if I was in Vegas right now, I wouldn't be betting on Trump at all. What about you? No way. Well, a couple things. I mean, you're right. He has certainly lost a lot of his base. And I, I didn't think that him getting... Um, slightly more than 50% of the caucus vote in Iowa got enough attention. That right. means the other half of voters mm -hmm. or, or caucus goers on the Republican side were wanted somebody else or supported somebody else. Um, so you've got that as a proof point. But also you got to think about this. Every election that he's been a part of, um, either directly on the ballot or indirectly um, as a referendum on Trump, um, 18 midterms, Obviously, the 20 election, he was on the ballot. You know, the the special elections in 2019, mm -hmm. he's lost. 2022 midterms, he had lost everything. every single, mm -hmm. everything. And by the way, it's not like all of a sudden he's getting this larger, you know, base of, of voters. Um, everything he does only allows his supporters to really, you know, become more and more fervent. Mm -hmm. But he's doing nothing to attract independent voters. He's doing nothing to attract swing voters. Uh, look, if the economy was not doing great, then I think we'd be we'd be having perhaps a different discussion. Mm -hmm. But because of the work that President Biden and his administration did, the economy is doing very well. Inflation's going down. Um, you know, the unemployment rate has been consistently low, historically low. GDP is high. Stock market is, you know, on a tear. Interest rates are starting to drop a little bit. The only reason why interest rates are high is because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um well, that's Which a really good point. You know, Biden inherited an awful pandemic era economy and not just turned it into a good economy, but by all leading economic indicators, probably the best economy we've seen in decades. Carville famously said, is the economy stupid? 
well, it doesn't yeah. feel like this year it's the economy stupid. It feels like it's Hunter Biden stupid. And maybe it's just because Trump has too much oxygen that the media is giving him. And it's like, and I guess to your point, what if the media came out and said, folks, this isn't even going to be close. This guy is a loser. He's probably going to be in jail in a year. Yeah. Like people would turn off the TVs. And I like, mean, I look, know. I think it is going to be close. I think it is going to be close. And I certainly don't want your listeners to think, ah, I can just stay home this year. Not a big deal. I think we win because everybody participates on the Democratic side. I of think course. we win. They have to, when I say it's, it's going to, it's not going to be close. If that, yeah. that, the requirement is that people vote. Gen Z people votes. Vote. Everybody votes. But if everybody votes, now. I don't know how close it's really going to be. But that's just my opinion. Well, you know, the, these the way the Electoral College is, you know, it's going to be very close in about seven states, right. seven to eight states mm-hmm. are where the election will be decided. Um, the blue wall, you know, we got to win Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, and those states are going to be very close. I mean, no surprise. Like, you know, I think Biden won the popular vote by nearly eight million, seven and a half to eight million votes in 2020. Um, unfortunately that does not, you know, the t- popular vote doesn't mean that you win or lose the presidency. Right. Uh, but it certainly shows you where a majority of the country is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 the most dangerous, uh, thing that, you know, puts, you know, president Biden and, and vice president Harris, uh, you know, in it, in a more challenging situation. I think this cycle is just a third party situation, a binary election, Biden wins, mm-hmm. uh, you factor in some of these smaller, um, candidates who are going to be on the ballot in some states and some really close marginal states, uh, that's where it becomes a little trickier. And, you, you know, I, I lived through Hillary. I was on Hillary's campaign for mm-hmm. 21 months in 2015 and 16. And, you know, Jill Stein yep. was one of the reasons why we lost because she was a Green Party candidate. The Green Party was on every uh, the ballot in every single state. And uh, people who were just mad at Hillary because they were just mad at her mm-hmm. um, couldn't, you know, couldn't allow themselves to vote for Trump, like kind of threw away their vote with Jill Stein. So um, a vote for the bottom line is this, a vote for anybody other than Joe, Joe Biden is a vote for Donald Trump. That is the plain and simple truth of this election. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to get high turnout. We got everyone's got to show up. Well, I think another factor is going to be Dobbs is also going to be Alabama. Uh, I mean, you know, I yeah. mean, women are galvanized as they have been for the last couple of years because they want these people out of their bodies. Um the is in your opinion is the GOP broken? Is it dead, or to quote Billy Crystal from The Princess Bride, is it mostly dead? <laughs> I think the GOP. I I think if Trump, well, when Trump loses in November, um, I think the MAGA movement either dies off or it becomes something else. Um, I think it's only hanging on right now because of Trump. Um, because people are coalescing around him. The the challenge, though, that the GOP has is like, what does that movement become when Trump loses in November? What does that movement become? And can the Republican Party get back to being the party of conservative values, the party of fiscal conservatism, the party of, you know, that they once were, um, the party of Ronald Reagan? And my, my guess is the answer is no, because they allowed Donald Trump to take over their party you know, I will never forget, and I, I, you know, talk about this every chance I get, um, but I will never forget watching in 2016, slowly but surely, all of these Republican challengers to Trump in the primary, slowly but surely, when they started to realize that he was going to win, that he was going to be their nominee, you know, they went from just ridiculing him, making fun of him, to like starting to really embrace him. Mm-hmm. And then it became this full on just, you know, this, 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 you know, whatever Trump says, we're going to forgive him. You know, Trump is our guy. We're going to like, you know, do the chest thumping bravado thing that Trump does. Um, and they've only embraced him more and more ever since then. And I knew at that time, we talked about it a lot on the Clinton campaign. At some point, this is going to backfire mm-hmm. on them. And it did. It didn't backfire immediately in 2016, but sure as heck backfired on the 2018 midterms. And it's been backfiring ever since. So I don't know what the Republican Party is going to do. Um, that is their own problem to figure out. Uh, but I don't see it ever becoming the party that it once was when uh, it was, you know, Mondale Ferraro versus, you know, Ronald Reagan and, and, and George Bush. I just don't see that becoming uh, going that party, the GOP going back to that that time where they're just focused on conservative values mm-hmm. or or. Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, you know, they're obsessed yeah. with that. They're obsessed with culture wars. Yeah. 
My last question has nothing to do with politics. It's a window in the so- into the soul question, and the, the best way to get a window into someone's soul is through music. So I, I think I know uh, who might be in your top five. You tweeted something about you two the other day, but give me your top five musical artists of all time. Oh my gosh, this is so great because I am such a music person. Um, let's see, I love Fleetwood Mac, huge Fleetwood Mac fan. Um, I feel like I should have been born in like, you know, 1960, but I was born in 1976. I love Fleetwood Mac. I've seen them live quite a few times. I saw them live with Hillary, which was great. I love the Eagles. The Eagles is probably still my all-time favorite band. I just saw them in Austin, saw them uh, when they were in D.C. I catch them as often as I can. I'm just a huge, huge fan. I love the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, they they sort of take me back to my college days, but I've also listened to their music throughout the years. Huge fan there. Um, what else do I put in my top five? Oh, I love Steely Dan. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's something you always hear people say, but I had this like kind of uncanny love for, for Steely Dan. Um, and I guess my fifth, I would go with probably a toss up between Rihanna and Madonna. I love some good Riri, uh, great okay. workout music. Good list. And uh, Madonna, I mean, who doesn't love Madonna? She's who back doesn't? on tour. I saw her on tour, yeah. tour in 85. She was great. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Oh, that was a great, I mean, that was a great tour. Yeah, and I almost asked her on a date once, and I should have, because it would have been a great story either yeah. way, and it's one of my biggest regrets in life. We'll talk about that next time. Uh, <laughs> Adrian, this was a lot of fun. I hope you'll come back. Thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate it. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.